0: welcome to crunching tackles where we break down the hardest hitting social issues in sports on today's show we're discussing a bit of football a bit of the other football before dialing in on the u.s open that just wrapped up my name is chad wiley and with me as always is john neckersov and john Uh, I hope that you had about as much of a sports-filled weekend as I did, which is uh, just the most sports I've had in quite a long time for for one weekend.
1: It was much sports. It was was an enormous amount of sports. It could only have been quote-unquote worse slash better if the Premier League was also in action because I did not catch much soccer at all. But if soccer had also been active, I would have woken up at like 8 a.m. on Saturday And watch sports literally from when I woke up until the U.S. Open uh, women's final finished, and then done the exact same thing on Sunday with all the football plus the U.S. Open men's final. Like it was just we were thriving. It was a wonderful time. It was this weekend is what crunching tackles is all about, and so as a result, we were recording literally the day after all of this magic has happened, right before the Bills Jets game is about to happen. Like the NFL is back, the tennis season has had a glorious finish like I don't know it, w- it was just just what it's all about
0: yeah so we're going to start with what the um, with what the political reporters call rank punditry which is where we just talk about the actual things that happened we will be providing some uh, social context along the way specifically in the uh, middle section of the pod and then also at the end um, I can't promise that there are any um, super insightful social issues when it comes to week one of the NFL action But there was a lot of drama, and I think there was also, in in my household and in your household, a lot of sadness that we really don't – I don't think we need to delve too deeply into. Should we just stick to the highlights and not the lowlights?
1: Yeah, I I think we can just – suffice it to say that the Titans and the Steelers season will be starting next week because that's that's our general consensus. (laughs) Yes. I, I think my season might start next year. Quite honestly, <clears> given what <throat> I just saw, but you know, it, there's always the possibility of an upswing. Um, we never count ourselves out too early in the season. We're both disciplined, um, organized teams with good um, running attacks. That you know, if they're used, maybe, w- maybe we'll do a little bit better. But
0: uh, yeah, composite head that's coaching all. overall. We'll yeah. see. I think that's John, all do have say about that. November second is a Thursday night game between the two of us. Just so like, you know, is it really? Titans at Steelers November 2nd that's a Thursday night game on the Amazon Prime network mm, and so we'll have to, we'll have to do, be locked in for that one at a I later think, date. Uh, I
1: think first of all I don't know that I remember I'm like I'm sure we played each other in the times as we've been friends but like I don't remember it happening quite honestly me, me either um, and I think if the NFL was like soccer what that game would be would be a relegation playoff um <laughs>
0: Oh, I That's thought I what you were about, about to say is that if that game was like soccer, then the Titans would be winning because Arsenal beats Manchester United when our soccer teams go head-to-head. But you went a different direction.
1: I um, did, because we're both really bad, unlike Arsenal, which is not really bad. Um,
0: correct. Um, but let's, so let's jump in the NFL. And I think there are a few interesting games and then a couple standout teams. We opened up on Thursday with Chiefs-Lions. Um, the Lions being kind of the team they were were they were they hard knocks to last year not this year they were but hard they were knocks before. in the off last year yeah yeah and so they're a team with a lot of publicity a big head coach haven't been good in over a decade well like like really really good they were pretty good last year and so they come in to the home of the defending champions and uh, pull off the upset and the Lions I've I've come to realize that. A lot of neutrals really like the Lions. I don't know if that's because of hard knocks or because of the coach, but Twitter was ab- buzz just with love for the Lions in the wake of this game. Um, maybe that's a little bit of Chiefs fatigue setting in, but w- whatever it was, um, a huge way to start off the season. Um, an unexpected result, a result that a lot of people seemed thrilled about, and kind of a good indication that... There's going to be a lot of parity this year, and there may not be as many teams just dominating as as we might have expected them to going into the season.
1: Yeah, I think a big trend that we'll see as we talk about these games is a lot of our, you know, our big teams that we expected to do well from given how they played last season were maybe not as good as we thought they were, um, at least to start the season this year. You know, week one is weird, Um Teams are still finding their rhythms. I'm not, like, judging the Chiefs too harshly based on this Lions loss. Um, but I do think an interesting social thing to kind of highlight, like you just said, is the vast love that the NFL collectively seems to have for the Detroit Lions, which I really do think is to a large degree because of both Dan Campbell and just the Lions organization being put in that show. And that kind of kick-started this very, like, Even Dan Campbell's press conferences, you know, leading out of that show were just so like energetic and aggressive. And I think that it's kind of an indicator of how TV shows now are such a strong marketing tool for these teams and for sports and like for entire sports, like with Formula One, like we've talked about before. It seems like that is also true with football teams, you know, which I think is an interesting thing that maybe we haven't seen before necessarily, but it's absolutely true with the Lions.
0: Yeah, and I think on the other side of that, I would I think you and I would agree that the two teams that maybe we expected to do better than they did were the Chiefs, number one, and then also the Bengals as kind of the, the two of the biggest teams, maybe like one of the three or four most popular favorites to win the Super Bowl who underperformed. The teams that you kind of thought would be really good that were really good would include the Cowboys, the Rams. The Eagles and the Dolphins were the four that kind of stats me. Those are the teams that you expect to be good and were good. The 49ers as well. I'm surprised by the—I'll just do my whole list here, then you can go through what you thought. Sure. Yeah. I was really surprised by how good the Packers were, and specifically by how good Jordan Love was, as he's now taking over the helm as QB1 there in the wake of Aaron Rodgers leaving. Putting up 38 points and his stat line was a really, really impressive uh, display Absolutely. for him. I think those were kind of... Oh, and then I guess uh, Baker and the Buccaneers was be the other one that I, we didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know until a couple of weeks ago that he even was the quarterback of the Buccaneers. Um, I had forgotten. And so for him to go into Minnesota, a team that a lot of people would expect to do well, still has Kirk Cousins, still has you know, the good wide receiver core... For Baker Mayfield and the Bucks to go in there and do that, I think was impressive. So I think biggest disappointments for me, just to recap, Chiefs and Bengals. And biggest surprises would be the Packers and the Buccaneers. And then a few of the other heavyweights just kind of did what you'd expect them to do for me, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Mm. I think also we absolutely need to highlight just how good the Dolphins were, especially Mm. Tua in yesterday's game. I mean, that was a remarkable performance, his stat line. 466 yards passing and three touchdowns as well as an interception like that is a crazy stat line You know, it was a close game against the Chargers It's the you know, the the two Herbert off that everyone always is hyping on the internet, but that was an incredible performance from him um, and You know, I don't know how well The Dolphins will do this year. I mean last year we kind of expected them to be really good based on how they started the season and then, obviously, Tua's injury really kind of played a factor in them not being the team that we expected them to be. And they have a hard division, too, right? You've got the Bills and the Jets in there, as well as the Patriots, you know, aren't that good of a team, but, you know, can still beat someone, can beat, based on their defense, a good amount of teams on their day. I was impressed by their performance, and I was also impressed by the Rams, which was interesting. You know, the Seahawks aren't, like, the strongest team in the world, but... Stafford showed up and played a pretty good game and that was the best it sounds like the Rams have looked since two years ago. I mean, last season was a complete dud. Um, but who knows, maybe they'll be a threat again this year. Maybe maybe McVeigh is starting to find the pieces a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a great point about Stafford. When you look at like stat like QBR, the names you expect to see at the top of that list are like Mahomes. And you expect to see Mahomes there, you expect to see someone like uh, Joe Burrow there. Let me just read the top five real quick. Actually, really, the top six: Brock Purdy, number one; Matthew Stafford, Tua; then Jimmy Garoppolo in his debut for the Raiders at number four; Russell Wilson at five; Jordan Love at six. That's not and obviously, obviously, with um, Josh Allen and Aaron Rodgers still to play tonight. But that's not that's aren't the six that you would expect to see there. And so, for Matthew Stafford to have a big debut, uh, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, I I have did mention the Raiders. Um, they beat the Broncos, and he. Played well. And, you know, again, a, a week full of just parody and teams that you don't always expect. I think, and I hope that that's a precursor for what will be a really surprising season where we don't just get to the end of the year and it's like, well, it's going to be one of the Eagles, Chiefs, Bills, and Bengals because that's what it always is. Yeah,
1: no, I think from what we saw, I think the Bengals will be better. Everyone's been saying this, but I think the Bengals will be better than we saw them play on Sunday, obviously. Um, Burrow's still recovering from that calf injury he picked up in the preseason and hasn't really played. I don't know if he played any preseason snaps, honestly, um, in in terms of games. So, you know, I think they were lacking a lot of match fitness, but still concerning signs from them. I mean, it was a terrible performance from them, like you highlighted earlier. And, you know, if they're going to play like that, like they're not going to do particularly well. The Ravens are not a bad team. And the Browns seem like they're here at least to a degree to play, even though Deshaun's still a bad game. But I don't know. I think I would not be sad at all if we saw more upsets continue to happen. As long as the Chiefs or the Eagles don't win, I think I'll be a happy camper, honestly, because I think we'll have a surprise if one of them doesn't win.
0: Yeah, I think so. And we'll obviously continue to talk through the sport as we get into the season. This is the sport that... Historically, has been the one I pay the most attention to, so I'm sure that mm-hmm. you and I will both be both be more than locked into it. John, Absolutely. before we get to the big tennis, do you want to briefly touch on the kind of the aftermath of the Spanish uh, World Women's World Cup victory? And I don't remember did we talk about the story at all, or has or has all of this transpired between podcasts for us?
1: Yeah, what? I I think that the kind of most of this story happened basically after. We released our last podcast. Um, so this is kind of, you know, a continued development that happened um, after the Women's World Cup when Spain won. Um, and it's kind of a strange story because it's the conclusion of a so, sort of semi-related story and also kind of unrelated story in that basically the Spanish women's players have kind of been in a mutiny against their coach for like at least the last year. Um And a lot of players refused to play and, you know, there were like 12 like 12 players Mm -hmm. Yeah, 15 players Basically said we don't want to play for this coach and we will not play until he's kicked out and essentially the president of the football federation Luis Rubiales basically refused and kind of things just came to a head some players I think didn't play in the World Cup. I think a lot of them ended up playing anyway Um, and they won the World Cup despite all of this tension And then an incident occurred at the ceremony when they gave out the trophy that I don't know if you want to break it down in detail, but it has kind of torn this team apart and it's also actually ultimately caused the result that they wanted to begin with.
0: Yeah, so what happens, and if you've ever watched a trophy ceremony in soccer, is that there's a big podium and all of the important people, the, the 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 president of FIFA, the president of the federation, sometimes like Official like uh, government officials and dignitaries will stand on a platform, and each player will walk past them all, shaking hands and getting a medal to commemorate their victory. So, uh, the striker for the Spanish women's national team, Jenny Hermosa, is in the line walking past all the people. She gets to Luis Rubiales, who is the like like you mentioned, the president of the Spanish Soccer Federation, and he kind of like grabs the side of her head and then kisses her on the mouth, which was a very bizarre thing i don't think it happened with any of the other players it was just a very bizarre thing to happen and it's caught on camera and so immediately people are noticing well that's you know a weird situation and so he's asked about it and he claims that it was consensual and that it was just like a a, you know part of the moment of joy and that everyone was fine with it and then jenny hermosa comes out with a video that kind of looks like a hostage video where she kind of like says that maybe it's fine. But then later on indicates that actually it wasn't consensual. And it was actually like she was very uncomfortable with that situation. Mm-hmm. And so then Ruby Rubiales is confronted with the fact that this player doesn't think that it was fine. And he just continues to deny that anything wrong happened. He won't take any accountability. He's asked if he's going to resign. He emphatically says he won't resign. The Spanish government opened an investigation into him. And he continues to be defiant, and so, and we'll get to the the bizarrest part of the story, which involves Luis Ribas's mother. Well, I just get to it now. So, in after this, after the Spanish government opens their Inquisition, and and also FIFA is investigating this, Luis Ribas's mother goes locks herself in a church in Spain and goes on a hunger strike in support of her son, saying that this is a persecution against her son who has done nothing wrong, even though he's clearly done something wrong. And we've all seen him do it on video and she ends up being hospitalized. Like she went on a hunger strike for multiple days and eventually is removed from the church and taken to hospital because of her condition. And that's just a bizarre element to the story as well, where this mother, you know, understandably wants to support her son, but also is clearly just devoid of facts and reason when it comes to what actually transpired in the situation has no understanding of what her son actually did or she wouldn't have taken that stance and so that leads us to this week and so this week in two separate news batches first Jorge Vilda the coach that you mentioned had all the controversy is fired uh while Luis Rubiales is still the president so Mm -hmm. the president and other people decide that he's going to be fired and then a few days later and really, I think just a couple of days ago from today, Luis Rubiales resigns as president of the Spanish Football Federation. He also was a high-ranking official for UEFA, which is the continent of Europe's soccer federation, and he resigned from his post there as well. Uh, that's, that's the story as it, as it currently stands.
1: Yeah, you know, you broke it down really well. And it, it's just, it's a really weird story because of all of the elements that you just mentioned in regards to what has happened in the three weeks or so since the World Cup and also the entire backstory before this. Like, we have just this sea of issues surrounding this team, right? You know, Ruby Rubiales refused to fire Gilda multiple times and then basically brought this situation to a head by himself in just in the heat of the moment and... I guess ultimately, to a degree, the women finally got the result they wanted, which was a change in leadership. But like, what a strange... I don't think I've ever seen a story like this happen. I've also definitely never seen a situation like that unfold at a trophy ceremony like that. Like, obviously bizarre, and reprehensible behavior from him. You know, that's just like a very strange action. And I do think it's remarkable that he was willing to be that brazen. Like normal, normally when we talk about stories like this, there's a lot of he said, she said, kind of behind the scenes stuff. And here's someone who was willing to just go out in public and do this in front of everyone and then just pretend like he wasn't going to get away with it. And it was interesting to see how public, the BBC reported that public opinion, though it was first divided, gradually just shifted against him more and more until I think he finally realized like he could not stay in the job and actually have any support left in the position he was in
0: right like he doesn't have the excuse of I knew it was wrong and just didn't think anybody saw it like when you were standing in a outdoor arena with thousands of people around you and and cameras from every single country you're on your best behavior like he clearly thought that that was just an okay thing to do Um, And evidenced by the fact that he did it, knowing where he was, and also the fact that he then had no remorse for it for multiple days. And I actually, I still haven't seen a statement in which he apologized. Maybe he has. I don't think he did. I've just seen the statement from the Federation saying that he has resigned. I I don't think he's actually, I don't think, I haven't seen anything from him written or verbal since he resigned in which he actually indicates that he has any remorse for, for what he did.
1: You are aware that he's appearing on Piers Morgan, right?
0: I'm not. He is appearing on Piers Morgan.
1: That is a thing that's happening. Like, this announcement kind of, like, came in tandem with him basically saying he's going to talk all about it in public. So it's a really, really really strange situation.
0: Well, if he's going to have a friendly audience anywhere, it will be Piers Morgan. Naturally. (laughs) (laughs) Naturally. Naturally.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just, like, I don't know that I have a ton of, like, really profound like cultural responses to this it's obvious that like all of us think it's really strange and essentially like harassing behavior right and beyond that it's like I just I, I just can't wrap my mind around the fact that you can be in public and behave in that manner like he literally was after the players won he was like grabbing his crotch toward his own players. It's yeah. like, you know, like a statement of testosterone, which we've seen male players, like male right. coaches do in front of or, male players. or
0: or uh, goalkeepers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like it that happens. You know, Emmy Martinez, Diego Simeone. Yeah. You know, there's that school of just like, you know, bravura that, you know, is kind of weird. But like, you know, it happens. But yeah. doing that in front and of and toward women next to like teenage players is wild behavior. Right. And yeah. I, I, I just can't wrap a mind around that. Just the fact that you think you can get away with that is crazy to me. Obviously, yeah. the right result happened, but like, just very odd.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the right result happened, and I think that even if the situation was handled better, I think that it's clear that this man should not be in a position where he's leading women in any capacity. Right. But yeah. I, I do just wonder, just optically, if the incident happened and he walked off the field and was shown a video of it and like, look at what you just did. And he instead responded with something like, I was completely swept up in the joy and excitement of the moment. I did this and I deeply regret it. And I'm very sorry to Jenny Hermosa and to the women of Spain. Like, I I wonder if he would have survived. Like, I wonder how much the incident, I wonder how much the incident versus the aftermath, you know, because I think that, Obviously, it's an inexcusable incident. But to me, I think the part that kept this story in the in in people's minds for weeks on end is that he kept being asked about it, kept denying, kept denying, did a press conference, said he wouldn't resign. Now he has resigned. But this story has dragged out for weeks now. Literally, mm-hmm. we're th- over three weeks removed from the end of the Women's World Cup. And I just wonder if he had immediately apologized the day of the World Cup, you know, unequivocally said what I did was wrong. I regret it. I didn't even you know, it was it was a completely out of body experience. I was just swept up in the joy. I do wonder if he would have survived because people would have moved on and just forgotten about it. And, you know, it just would have been a weird moment like we've talked about from the aftermath of the celebration. And instead it's become a week's long international saga that includes you know the coach and this guy's mm-hmm. mother, like I mentioned, and, and the whole team having to respond to it—it it just became such a big story. And obviously, this kind of wrongdoing does deserve to be a big story. People need to know that's not acceptable social behavior in public. But yeah, I, I did leave me wondering if a better response might have might have kept Rubios in his position.
1: Well, I think that's a good point. I think it underlines the fact that this entire situation is like the the crowning moment of a very large problem that was under the surface with the spanish national team for a long time right yeah. you know if he was a better administrator that one knew how to do pr for himself correctly just completely selfishly and also cared about his players most likely the team would not be in the situation he was in to begin with, right? So he had a clear track record of refusing to listen to his players and refusing to respect his players. And the fact that he then decided to openly disrespect his player and then refused to back down from it is not surprising to me at all. But the fact, mm-hmm. again, that, you, like you said, that men like that are in charge of women's sports is I think the biggest problem that we can highlight here, right? We've talked about this with NWSL. You know, you have male coaches male, you know, team owners, male administrators, right? Who are in these positions. And, you know, this is not, you know, exactly the same as some of the situations we've talked about that are like deeply criminal and problematic, right? But there's still, it's still an indicator of that culture of male disrespect for female athletes that is happening all across the sports world, right? And it's just another indicator, one, Public opinion is increasingly against that, which is awesome. And number two, the the problems culturally are still there within the system.
0: Yeah, thankfully, he's not in a position of leadership anymore. Um, I I think the biggest disappointment for me is that this was a Women's World Cup that was the most popular Women's World Cup ever Mm -hmm. and was a huge event in the countries that hosted it, where it had massive turnout, was a big story. Um, internationally as the games were progressing and so for this now to be remembered as the the KISS World Cup and not just a really awesome step for women's soccer and the growth of that sport is obviously really disappointing because I think if this story had not happened then the attention would still be on just how great of a tournament it was Mm. not just exciting and dramatic on the field but a big a big step forward for the popularity of that sport on the women's side so um, disappointing. Ultimately, though, a result that I think you and I can both say long overdue, but we're we're glad it finally did happen. Better sure. late than never, as they say. Yeah. And uh, speaking of continuing to do well uh, late, that was a poor transition, but here that we go. Pretty, that was pretty bad. Um, we're
1: here anyway. <laughs> yeah, the big event,
0: of course, and the thing that we said that we were going to talk about last time is, of course, the U.S. Open. Um, I have a, tweet, a text that I sent to you in at the beginning of the tournament in which I said that received. Carlos Alcaraz and Coco Gauff would win the tournaments, respectively. So I would like to take 50% um, credit for nailing my, my pre-tournament prediction. Uh, receive it. If you have lived under a rock in the past few days, it is worth mentioning just that Coco Gauff and Novak Djokovic won the respective women's and men's singles finals. Two people at very different places in their careers, and Mm -hmm. we're definitely going to talk about that. Uh, But before we get into the champions, what did you think of the tournament overall? Because I don't think it was the most dramatic or most exciting Grandson I've ever seen, but there certainly was, in my opinion, plenty of high-quality tennis to go around.
1: Absolutely. I think it was a really fun tournament, and for me, more than anything, the whole course of this U.S. Open kind of underlines... What I feel like, I mean, I don't know if it's just me kind of being slowly entering the tennis silo and feeling like I'm getting in the hype, but it feels like there's a broader, there's a broadening of appreciation for tennis that's happening right now. I don't know if I'm just imagining that, but it feels like every time I pop on social media from all kinds of different corners, there's interest in tennis. I'm seeing it all over TikTok right now, all over Twitter or X or whatever. You know, like it seems like, there On this podcast,
0: is, we call it Twitter. Yeah, we do call it Twitter.
1: Sorry. Um, I don't know. It seems like there's interest from unexpected areas in tennis. And I think it's because of, to a degree, the change in personalities that's happening as younger players enter the sport. And we saw a lot of younger players and a lot of younger Americans do pretty well in this tournament. And I think that's a big thing to highlight. And Coco Golf is like the top of that heap you know, of American athletes thriving at this tournament in America on American soil. But we had a lot of other players. Ben Shelton made the semifinals. Yeah. Uh, he lost to Djokovic. But Taylor Fritz also played Djokovic in the quarterfinals. Like Djokovic knocked out two Americans in the latter rounds of the tournament to get to the point that he did. Uh, Madison Keys was in the semifinals on the other side of the bracket. Shelton beat Tiafo to get to the semifinals. Yeah. Like
0: Jessica Jessica Pagula
1: Mm -hmm. Like we saw young Americans to a lot of extents take center stage at this tournament. And I think that is in terms of the American profile, awesome for the sport.
0: Yeah. I mean, there hasn't, we're we're coming out of the Venus and Serena era in which for many years, women's tennis did revolve around America. Mm -hmm. Men's tennis hasn't revolved around America. And we talked about this for years. And so to have, and you've named them all three, legitimate men's contenders and three legitimate women's contenders from america all at the same time is huge for the growth of the sport to have pagula keys and goff on the women's side and shelton fritz and tiafoe on the men's side is just massive it it i really can't state how big that is to 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 the u.s open in particular but also to american interest in tennis that will extend hopefully to australia and to wimbledon and to paris it's it's wonderful it really is and yeah. I, I yeah i think that the story of the tournament to me and eve nailed it was the growth of, of the u.s tennis ben shelton i had never heard of before to be honest with you never heard of him or oh, did you
1: not watch him in australia
0: not really no not really oh, like okay. yeah completely yeah pretty much completely unaware mm-hmm. um and so for him to do what he did as and this is the other thing i'll say is there was there also there was a feeling of passing of the torch as well because this was john isner's last us open Mm -hmm. as he announced his retirement this is a year after serena announced her retirement and um so john isner won a round then lost in the second round and that we knew that was going to be the end and she hasn't said anything but i would be stunned if venus williams plays tennis again she did not look competitive in her first round so it very much felt like on the men's and women's side there was a u.s kind of passing of the torch moment Mm -hmm. as these kids were were taking the torch from um from these guys and i think wasn't it wasn't it ben shelton who did beat john isner in the second round if i remember correctly no it was michael moll oh oh, that's right that's right who was also yeah the other young american who did Mm -hmm. pretty well made it to the Third or fourth round, so yeah, um, yeah, lots of U.S. to go around. But let's let's get to this weekend, and we'll start on Saturday with the women's final. This was Coco Golf at 19 years old. She's been a big story for four years now, which is crazy that she started. She became a, a national celebrity at 15, and people had been touting her as the next great thing for literally four years now, and. There were some moments where she was really bright. There were some moments where she was really struggling. And maybe people wondered if she was kind of a flash in the pan that would never never fully bloom. Kind of like what happened with Emma Raducanu, where she won the U.S. Open, and then we just haven't heard from her since. Uh, but Goff has now done the thing that she had to do, which is win a Grand Slam at 19. She beat Arena Sabalenka. And I thought that she was incredible. I mean, I thought that Arena Sabalenka was also a better player on her best like I, just, I don't think Coco Goff plays the best tennis of anyone in the world like I mm-hmm. still think that Iga Swiatek and Arena Sabalenka at their best do have higher heights that they can get to but what Coco Goff has is a really really great defensive game she just gets the ball back in she stays in rallies longer than other people do there's actually a lot of Novak Djokovic in her game which I think we'll mm-hmm. get to but um what were your takeaways on her performance
1: yeah I love the um The tennis podcast which we both listen to and is like the the preeminent tennis authority in the podcasting world compared her to Andy Murray as well and I thought Mm. that was really funny because there is like similar to Djokovic too like there's there is a stoic nature to her as a 19 year old that you would just never expect to see from a normal 19 year old like she is just here she's been in the sport like a veteran for four years now and hasn't hadn't won her slam yet, and then got to this point. And I kind of I love that golf and Djokovic won their respective titles because they they are like this fascinating mirror image of each other. But they kind of won to a degree their titles in sort of the same way. Golf maybe not as dominant as Djokovic, obviously, because she's just a different player. But they both exhibited this like absolute refusal to surrender any points at any point in their final matches. And, you know, Goff seemed like in that first set, like she was going to fight, but ultimately Sabalenka was just going to power through. And then she just found another gear. And no matter what Sabalenka did, she could not find her way past her. And in the end, Goff channeled that to her advantage and just made her make mistakes. And I don't know. It's just, it was an incredible performance. It was incredibly mature performance. And what I love about the fact that she won is that she is just such a likeable character you know like no matter who you want to win in any particular match like you can't root against her no Mm -hmm. matter the situation right no matter where you're from like she just has just like a it's just clear that she loves the sport like she's just there because she enjoys it and she wants to win and she wants She is clear like a great family relationship and you know, strong faith clearly, which you know, we we laughed about when uh, ESPN kind of like tried to like paper over it on Twitter. Um, that was funny. You, you sent it to me, and I was like, "Yeah, this is a little weird." Like they, I guess she was videoed praying after after winning, and they said like, what "Was the caption like she's just taking the moment in or something?"
0: Yeah, she. So she's she's kneeling at her chair with her hands clasped and like speaking out loud that you can see her lips moving. Yeah. And the ESPN caption was, Coco Goff takes a moment to soak it all in.
1: <laughs> Which is just a little funny. Like, come on, guys. Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. Let's, let's, it's very obvious what's going on. Correct, correct. Um, but yeah, no, it's just like, everything about her shows like a maturity beyond her years and a willingness to fight and to be dedicated and to work hard. Um, and I'd love to see her kind of enter the ranks of the Shpia Texans, Sabalenka's, you know, that have been to a degree dominating the sport over the last couple of years. I think she has a talent already at her age to elevate herself into that level.
0: Yeah. She's both very mature and very youthful still. Yeah. Like she still is like, you know, active on, she's a kid on social media and she uses Mm -hmm. very Gen Z expressions in her interviews while also being incredibly composed on the court, much more composed than Arena Sabalenka is. And, um, which mo- most athletes are more composed than arenas have blankets to be fair, true. <laughs> um, but just like I mean, you said the word stoic, and she is until she gets in front of a microphone or on TikTok or in any other setting, in which her personality just jumps out. I love the fact that after some of her wins, she would go immediately from the court to the ESPN desk to do like an interview, and she's great mm-hmm. in that setting. She's really funny. She you know made some jokes about her dad crying for the first time. She was really really enjoyable. But but you don't see that personality on the court. On the court, she's Not just a all. machine. She has no no showmanship like Nick Kyrgios or Carlos Alcaraz. She has no emotion, very little, compared to someone like Sabalenka or um, Stefanos Tsitsipas or someone like that. She just doesn't have any of that. She's just as cool as you like, and she's she's great. Um, and I I I think that she we we it still is too young to. Talk about, you know, how far is she going to get in the sport? And frankly, the women's game is just in a really good place right now where there are so many people who could win majors. Like, for the next, I think for the next 10 years, winning five majors for any person would be amazing over the next 10 years because there are just so many women who are sharing the wealth right now. There's just so much talent to go around. I think it's funny. I did the math. If she wanted... So Djokovic has just won his 24th major at the age of 36. If Coco Goff wanted to win 24 majors at the age of 36, she would have to win 1.3 grand slams each year for the next 17 years. That's a lot of slams. That's a lot. I, I mean, I it's it that puts it in perspective just how baffling what, what Novak has done. And he didn't emerge on the scene at 19 like she did. He's actually done that in a much more condensed period of time. Mm-hmm. But it I think that we do need to kind of reset the way we think about excellence in the sport yeah. because for Serena to be at 23 for Novak to now be at 24, the sport isn't in a place where there's going to be one person dominating like that. We saw it on the men's side. Uh, we thought it would be Carlos and he doesn't even make the final. Like it, mm-hmm. I do think that we need to think that, okay, like seven, eight, nine, ten grand slams is an immensely historic career for any person. And, like, Iga Tech best player in the world, is, is on, what, four, I mm-hmm. think? I think it's four. Yeah, there's, there are just so many people who I think now that Serena and the big three in the men's game are, are moving out of the way, I think we're going to see lower total numbers and a lot more parity on, on both sides of the tennis world. Which I think is probably
1: a good thing for the sport in the long run. You know, even though it's cool to see excellence. Right. Like, Serena just showing up and dunking on literally every other player is, like, awesome for Serena and less interesting in terms of like competition. Right. Um, I do, before we jump over into the men's side, because there's a lot to talk about there. I do want to ask you a question as a tennis guy who has followed tennis for a long time. What do you think this kind of new influx of young, like Gen Z players like Coco is going to do for the sports culture? Cause it seems like it, it feels kind of, like in a halfway point right now where there's a lot of players who are trying to be a lot more personable, or trying to establish their like personal funny brands. Players like Medvedev and off yeah. obviously are trying to like kind of buck trends a little bit and be a little goofier and maybe a little more disrespectful. And it seems like the crowds to a large degree kind of like it, but the tennis rules do not. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested, like, do you see some of those kind of unspoken or spoken traditions in tennis changing to a degree as these players kind of make their influence known, or do you think they'll have to kind of keep conforming?
0: No, I think the rules bend to be Mm. honest. And I I think we've seen it in a sport like baseball where the new wave of baseball players have, have invoked rule changes. And Mm. I think that the indication that the, the Wimbledon has already changed its all white dress policy at, for women at the at the request of players is an indication that these rules these long standing traditions like the all white at Wimbledon are going to change and will continue to change there's just the 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 kind of the idea of like the noble athlete almost the royal athlete like mm-hmm. like Ro- Roger Federer being the best example or or Serena right. Like, that's just not where the game is right now. Like, I've never seen, I've literally never seen a tennis player have a trademark celebration like Ben Shelton does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what he's doing is straight out of, like, the NBA playbook. Like, the LeBron absolutely. silencer celebration. Or, or soccer players who all have their yeah. signature things. Like, that's what Ben Shelton is doing now. And it was awesome. People loved it. Novak Djokovic did it right back to him. He absolutely everyone, did. Everyone took that in good spirit and good fun. And I love the fact that in Novak's victory speech, and we're we're kind of flip flopping here, he he specifically mentioned uh, Daniel Medvedev's personality and said, "Please never, please never change. Yeah. Keep keep being aggressive. Keep shouting. Keep celebrating. Uh, keep being funny." I think there are certain of the older generation of players like Novak who are recognizing the way that these young people are adding to the sport, and I do think you know having athletes be on social media like very naturally and in a way that where they understand the way of that world i mean coco is a massive social media star in addition to a very very good tennis player and she has a lot of fans because of that i do think that tennis i think the biggest hurdle that tennis and all sports face of being relevant is that is what we've talked about is this the attention span of the generation Mm -hmm. of of consumers So is tennis something that can be packaged into 30-second clips and sound bites? Maybe a little bit, but not well. And so the question is not can tennis keep up with other sports when it comes to younger fan interest. The question is can sports keep up with young people interest. And that's still, I think, a question that I don't know the answer to. But the tennis I saw and the people I saw playing it have me really excited for the next 20 years of enjoying the sport.
1: Me too. I mean, tennis for me is genuinely like my interest in the sport is skyrocketing currently, right? Like, which I would, if you had told me that like three years ago, I would have been like, "That's dumb. Tennis is stupid." (laughs) Like, that would have been my response. It is so boring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, I mean, it's evidenced by the content that like the U.S. Open TikTok is putting out right now. Is I don't know if you've seen any of it. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely absurd. Mm -hmm. Like they are leaning into Gen Z TikTok content because clearly. People are watching it, right? And that is like I think the video of the explainer of Djokovic doing the Shelton phone celebration had like at least seven million views. I think by the time it had finished, um, yeah, on TikTok. And I think maybe we should maybe we can start there with Djokovic as we talk about Djokovic's run to yet another title. Because Djokovic, like you said, took Medvedev's fun in good fun. I think he mm-hmm. does like him. I think they have a respect for each other. I thought his silencing of Shelton was really, really funny. And some people did not take it in good stride because they are like, oh, you know, he's just a little kid and you're like the greatest of all time. You know, why are you being so petty? And I was like, this kid is being so aggressive and in your face the entire time. And I don't know, I feel like if you're the older player, no matter how much better you are, if they're being aggressive and in your face, you have every right to shut them up and put them in your place. Like that was like that was an NBA stare down after like posterizing someone, saying like "Welcome to the league, buddy."
0: Yeah, and I mean it's it's so much the kind of thing that five years ago would have been universally condemned. Absolutely, that, and like now everyone's really so, like woo. <laughs> like 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 Roger, Roger Federer is just not is not doing that to anybody. Would never have done that. <laughs> but Novak is aware of how this sport is going. He is the the last bastion of the old guard who's still in here he's hanging out with medvedev and seeing these young guys and so he took it in good fun thankfully ben shelton took it in good fun and everybody had a good time everybody loved what ben shelton did he wasn't gonna win the tournament at any point no. <laughs> and so he he made it further than anyone thought he would and then he you know seeded the way to novak who and i think I think paid him a respect by mimicking his celebration and then kind mm-hmm. of ushered him to the sideline and <laughs> Novak just did his thing and 24 John is is crazy. I remember so then- I remember 5 years ago thinking that Serena's 23 was just com- was a mind boggling. Like that was like the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar all-time points record. Like it was just, I just couldn't believe that could nobody could ever get to 24. Forget the fact that Margaret Court did get to 24 a long time ago. But, like, in the modern era, nobody could get there. And he's tw- 24. He matched
1: Margaret Court's record from, like, the amateur era. Yeah, 24. Right? When this sport was completely different. Like, like tennis was it was not the same, like, sport at all. And Novak's got there. Like, it is an insane achievement. And Daniel Medvedev, who he beat in straight sets in the final. You know, three sets to love. Literally, his first line when asked in the press conference, like, in the in the trophy conference afterward, was, like, jokingly, he was like, man, why are you still here? You know, like, he, he's, he, all his, like, his former competitors have all aged out of the game, basically. Yeah. Their bodies have given out. They're not able right. to do this anymore. Right. And Novak is still there with all these young guys, shutting them all up, continuing to perform against people who are almost 20 years younger than him and still like this is not a team sport where like Messi can like walk around the field a little bit you know when he's tired and doesn't want to run Novak it's just Novak on the court like it's just yeah. him either yeah. you run or you lose and he's still there like that's crazy to me
0: yeah so I want to do some math Rafael Nadal has announced that he's going to play for he's going to play the calendar year 2024 so presumably right. he's going to play four majors He's not going to win four grand slams. Let's no. let's say he does. Let's say that he gets to 26. I I would be more than convinced that Novak will get past 26. So like like I mean, you think he'll go win three more? He's not. He's not. How many? Okay, let's let's put it this way. How many years do you think Novak has left?
1: Oh gosh. I mean, I think didn't he say he wants to play in the Olympics in like 2028?
0: He did say that. He would be like 40. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's going to happen at at age 41. I think he has two full years of
1: peak performance.
0: Okay, so let's say he plays all of 2024 and all of 2025. Yeah. You think think he's getting to two more or three more Grand Slams out of eight? I think he'll
1: get two more in the next two years. So that's 26.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's say that Carlos wins three. Let's say Daniel wins two more. There are at least two more Grand Slams for Novak out there. He is. Mm-hmm. He will. He'll. He might win Australia in four months from now. Who knows? And so, like, he, he, nobody's nobody's gonna get there. Nobody's ever gonna get anywhere near him for the. I think for the rest of time. And I. I wanted to talk about his place in the history of athletes because I'm thinking about these numbers, like the crazy numbers in sports. Bill Russell, eleven championships. Michael Phelps, eight gold medals at the single Olympics. Uh, Rafael Nadal, fourteen slams at, at one event. Um, you know, the the LeBron James with uh six MVPs, or the Michael Jordan with six NBA finals and six finals MVPs, or Tom Brady with six Super Bowls. All of these numbers that you're like, wow, that's crazy. Seven. Mm-hmm. Seven Super Bowls? Uh, yeah, didn't probably, he win? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 24 is kind of the most mind-boggling number to me. Like even Tiger at 15 seems to make more sense than that one person would win 24 Grand Slam titles. That is 6. That's 6 entire calendar years of Grand Slams. Most people can't be great at anything for 6 years. And yeah. that's that's to mean that you win all of them over a 6-year period. It I I don't I'm not sure that he is the greatest like athlete of all time. He's in the top five I mean like if you want to talk Serena Simone Biles who by the way is back and winning all-around gold medals again that's a remarkable thing she probably played the Mm -hmm. Olympics at age 27 in gymnastics like she's in the conversation Serena's in the conversation Phelps uh, LeBron not LeBron Jordan and Tom Brady and Tiger or Jack Nicholas. you can take your pick there based on the era Novak has a really good case against any of them and I think when you're talking about who has the most insurmountable statistical achievement, 24, and it probably will end at 26 or 27, is really, really impossible for me to comprehend. Was you know, watching them in high school when they're fighting for like 11 and 12, and it's like, whoa, 11? No way, 11? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's what's fascinating to me about it is. Tennis, unlike most sports, has a really clear measurement for deciding who is the greatest player ever. Yeah, right. Like for a while, we were like, "Can we really decide who the best of the big three is?" And now just that, count. Like, I, that conversation just yeah yeah you just keep <laughs> counting and you're like, "Well, he's still here." You know, like with soccer, it's you know you to a degree you could be like, "Messi's the goat," uh, "Pele's the goat." You know, Pele won three World Cups. He scored. A, a billion goals essentially. Messi's career has been brilliant from beginning to end and has not ended yet. But just still, you're working with so many unquantifiables regarding a player's place in the team and the teams they're on, and you know how do you measure someone's stats at one team compared to their stats at another team? With Novak, I mean, you just like like you said, you just count. Yeah. You just look look at the and, trophy cabinet.
0: And that's the thing about tennis too. When you think about the goat athlete, which is like. You can't, you can't, you know, there's no Kyrie Irving for LeBron to pass to to actually go win the championship. Right. And there's no coach tactics who can bench you or any, like there's any of the team sports stuff. Like there's no, there's no receiver that Tom Brady can just throw to. It, it is entirely the will of one person.
1: You, to, you are alone.
0: To go out there and just do it. And he has done it 24 <laughs> times. I'm going to keep saying the number 24 until it becomes 25 for the rest of my life, as, like, I cannot believe that I saw that happen. Mm-hmm. I've, I, Kobe Bryant scored 81 points in a single game, and that still wasn't the most. Obviously, we can talk about Will Chamberlain, but, like, I watched him score 81 points. That felt mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's ever going to score 81 points in an NBA game again. I'm convinced that nobody else is going to beat Novak Djokovic's Grand Slam record.
1: I would just like to say... I'm not going to take this conversation to silly places because lots of people like taking conversations to silly places. But I will say that I'm glad that Djokovic has gotten these wins and taken his legacy to the point where people aren't saying all this silly stuff about his legacy anymore. Um, a lot of the discourse around him was just like, you know, take your pick on his takes on cultural issues. But he was very much sullying people's view of an unbelievable athletic career, and I do Not feel like he has silenced. Hold on, this.
0: hold on. Not just his takes; he cost himself two more Grand Slams. Sure, let's I be mean, clear on your point of
1: view, right?
0: He defaulted yeah. out of a U.S. Open for angry behavior, in which he smashed a ball into the crowd, and then he did you know turned down a vaccination and actually missed two. So he, he could potentially cost right. himself so actually, three more. Yeah, absolutely. But but I think what I had to what I had to come and I, for a long time I that was my thing. Like, well, he's he didn't do it the classy way like Roger and Rafa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like, exactly. But every goat. I mean, like Tom Brady has Spygate and Deflate Gate.
1: Yeah, he's the
0: undisputed goat. But that's there. Jordan had you know other issues, anger issues, gambling. He left for baseball. Troubled life, all that stuff. Like the obviously, of course, the perfect athlete doesn't exist. And I think it's easy to pretend like you can take morals into equation until you look at the comparisons and you realize that, you know, when you're talking about the, there isn't the perfect greatest athlete of all time, who is also the greatest moral character. They all have their issues. And Novak Djokovic seems to be a kind, interesting person who people like, who likes people who's considerate. He seems to like, respect the sport and respect his opponents and he has some beliefs yeah sure we can disagree but he seems like a decent guy as yeah. well as being the greatest tennis player of all time. and I, I mean I I I tried so hard to not do this because I'm such a big rafael <laughs> Nadal fan. you know that I tried I tried, no, I I know. tried for That's so why hard. I brought this up <laughs> and he has made it completely impossible to make the case for anyone else for the rest of time. Like, I'm right. out here like, well, what if Rafael Nadal sweeps the 2024 calendar year? <laughs> Which is just, like, not going to happen. If he, plays,
1: if he plays in France, I will be happy with his year, quite honestly. Because yeah, I, I, mean, just, I just don't know.
0: I think so. But So, like, I mean, and that's the way to do it, right? When you have doubters is just make it impossible to go anywhere mm-hmm. else. And right. I stand here or sit here in my chair acknowledging that it is impossible to look anywhere else. It is Novak Djokovic, and it always will be.
1: Boom. Okay. Thank you for saying that. I just, I just <laughs> felt like, <they> would, <laughs> given the many conversations we've had on this yeah. podcast, I felt like, in intellectual honesty, we needed to have this
0: conversation. I think I appreciate um, it.
1: Yeah. I think genuinely, you know, there's things that Novak has done and said that have obviously been controversial. Some just because of tennis culture and others because I think he can sometimes be a prickly character. Mm-hmm. Um, and all great athletes are, to a degree, and I don't think I would say that Djokovic is like more likable than Fed from everything I've heard about Roger Federer. Like, I don't think anyone would make that claim. Um, But I do think it seems like he's a decent guy, you know? And I think it is nice that it feels like tennis culture, even the U.S. Open crowd, is, like, starting to recognize that. Like, they were behind him the whole way throughout this tournament.
0: Could I go on a tangent for just a brief second? Absolutely. That's why we're here. I wonder if the types of things that we cover on this podcast have contributed to, like the grace that we give athletes that we're like, it's okay now to just be decent because we see so much bad behavior. Like the things that used to be such big scandals, like, like big things of disrespecting opponents or like def- deflate gate was the biggest deal ever. Oh, or, or, you know, like, like um, the Cowboys, you know, planting the flag on an opposing team's 50 yard line. And now when we just cover stories of domestic abuse and, you know, literal fights and all these horrible things people say on social media like athletes who behave in really 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 disgraceful content or conduct Mm -hmm. i wonder if we just like decent now like that's the thing about novak is like like he has some problems but he hasn't beaten anyone he doesn't have any allegations of rape or like i mean he's just like he's just decent and i maybe decent is all we ask of now because we don't we don't need role models because we're just trying to navigate how to deal with all the actual terrible people we have to talk about like last week and this week and every other week.
1: That's, I've never thought of that, but that's such an interesting point
0: because I mean, like has our, has I our do. bar lowered on athletes to just be okay people as opposed to oh, role models. Also,
1: see, I was almost thinking the other direction. I mean, cause like there were a lot of role model athletes I feel like before who were kind of much more aggressive Individuals And people liked it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think the bar to a degree has like maybe lowered, but it's also been raised a little bit. And that we expect like at least people who try to be decent. Because a lot of, I mean, like, I don't think anyone ever say that MJ was a decent person. Really? No. Did you? No. He didn't seem like a nice guy at all. Not really. And and he was still a superstar. And it kind of feels like we want maybe not perfect sports people, but at least kind of nice sports people. And right. Djokovic feels like that. Carlos feels like that. People like Giannis feel like that. Um, yeah.
0: Like someone like LeBron went and built a school. Yeah. Like that That used to be the kind of thing that you expected of athletic role models. And that's, now that kind true. of feels, now it feels like he went above and beyond. And mm-hmm. may, maybe athletes have been maybe deflecting that role more and so it is more noticeable when there really is an exceptional character of an athlete but also like when we talk about all these horrible things that we're seeing athletes do it does like i was thinking about novak and it's like if the worst thing you did is have some weird opinions about the vaccine and like hit a ball into the stands once right and and like maybe your dad has a couple weird like political affiliations like in the grand scheme of things that's one of the like Better people we've talked about <laughs> on this podcast in our, you know, 126-episode history.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think mean, that's a completely valid interpretation of things. And that's kind of fascinating, genuinely. Because, I mean, we talk about the amount of stories we've had with well-known players and their reputations suddenly disappear as something goes terribly wrong. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, you are a bad person. Like, I think we do maybe we're more accepting of people who are like that. I think we're also kind of more okay with like the pantomime villain character Mm. rather than the actual villain character.
0: Yeah, so like the people who are putting on a character as opposed to just having bad character.
1: Yeah, like Djokovic is kind of a pantomime villain character, obviously. Sure. Right? Yeah. like, Like, against Shelton, everyone loves to boot against Djokovic, but he takes it so well that, like, the crowd kind of loves him for it, even though they're, like, rooting against him.
0: Right. And it's it's the difference between... We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's the difference between Zlatan Ibrahimovic and, like, Nick Kyrgios. They're both playing the same role. Right. But, like, at the end of the day, you think that Zlatan is, like, a genuinely decent guy who seems to not have any trouble and is just being funny where like then, then Nick Kyrus has like multiple sexual assault allegations and you're like that is maybe, that should, yeah. maybe he's just like might he might be a bad person whereas Zlatan was obviously playing a bad guy but doing it in good fun.
1: Yeah I, I've never heard anything bad about Zlatan in his personal no. life ever. Yeah. Not a single no. time. Like he's super weird. Like I cannot imagine being friends with him. But like he seems like a perfectly fine person who's like right. not a problem. Right. Right. Yeah, I've actually never thought about that. But, like he seems like the kind of person who would be like a seriously problematic person,
0: but like is not at all. No, not really. <laughs> but we're <laughs> like we're like someone else is doing the exact same thing as a show, but then also has you know troubling issues in their character, right. as opposed to just playing a character. I think it's interesting. You know, like the, hmm. we always talk about the who's who is the WWE era like heel, who is the the bad guy, right. and I don't know. I mean, obviously. Like I said, Novak has made it so undeniable that he is the greatest of all time. But also, like I've, I've again, I've thought about him as like as a troubled character, and I'm sitting here thinking about it's like, that's nothing. That's no trouble at all. <laughs> like the things we talk about on here, like Tom, like we'll take Tom Brady. The worst thing you did is deflate a football below the standard PSI, and like maybe you spied on your opponent
1: and get a divorce. Like those and, are the only sure, things that have like, happened. Yeah, in his life. right.
0: Yeah, like. You know? People talk about Tom Reed, like like tarnish legacy. Like, that's that's barely a tarnish at all compared to this, <laughs> compared to Deshaun Watson or you know any other of his Who's peers. Still playing in the league, right? Right. I can't get over the fact that I have to watch him. It's horrible. Win. he won, I I, I that could be a whole podcast. That made me I I was actively uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I, it genuinely. I think you're, I do think like going back to your original point. I think I think to a degree I like. I slightly disagree in that I think people are, because of all the nasty stuff, are really drawn to actually likable athletes. Mm -hmm. People like Carlos Alcaraz are stars because they are just happy. Coco on the field, or Coco. They're Mm -hmm. on the field and you're like, or the court, and you're like, you are a great person and you can see it on your face every time you talk to anybody. But I do think you're right that I think we are more forgiving of things that we would have blown out of proportion before, because maybe at the time they felt like big issues, but then when faced with very serious issues, it's like, okay, this is an issue, but we have more important things to deal with.
0: A decade ago, less than a decade ago, there were actual sports debates about if Baker Mayfield could be an NFL quarterback because he planted the Oklahoma flag on the Ohio State logo after beating them. Like that, that was a controversy that was a that was a first take and undis- mm-hmm. that was a that was a big deal. Baker did what? He disrespected Ohio State by running around the field and putting the Oklahoma flag on top of the Ohio State look. I can't believe he did that. that, that's, and now here we are. that that's so trivial. Yeah, that, that, that's that's an average, just moment in sports now. Like we, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think it. We need to that's talk so about this. Maybe this is a an insight that could be a whole podcast and not an hour into it, but it definitely yeah. led my mind just went there, and it, it is fascinating to think about. To to bring it back though, I mean, is there anything else you want to say about Novak? I don't know if you want to declare him the greatest athlete of all time. I want to declare him to at least have a case against anyone, and I need mm-hmm. to think about it more. He he might be. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to like stand on that right now. But if you put him head to head against anybody else. You can make a really, really great case for him. I mean, he is right there. There's no question about it. He is right there um, with any
1: athlete. I mean, he is at least equal with every other athlete who has ever played the game. Of any any, sport, any game. Yeah, any, any game. game. Who's played any game. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a remarkable achievement. I do want to briefly just say kind of, by contrast, it was interesting. It was a really fun tournament for me. It was interesting seeing... Carlos not make it Mm -hmm. um, to the final. I think that was a, this is kind of a sidebar. We've kind of had like the climax of this conversation already, but I do think it's important to note, we kind of expect Carlos to win most of these matches now as Mm -hmm. the world's number one, as a player who seems to have so many options in his locker to beat almost everyone and especially beat Medvedev, who Medvedev historically has struggled against so much. I think A lot of, just because of how much Carlos dominates at the net, Um, Bibbjeda just often has no answer to that. And it was fascinating to see him completely adopt his game and play very much like Coco played against Sabalenka and just defend and defend and defend and say, you know what, I am going to hit back at you every single time and you're going to have to beat me for real if you want to actually make this work. And Carlos didn't have answers and he said in the press conference afterward, I wasn't mature enough, was basically what he said. Um, yeah, and so I, th- I think it's a less. It's not like Carlos has won two majors already at age twenty. This is not a feeling for me of like, oh no, Carlos is in trouble. But I think it is going to be a big learning moment for Carlos um, as a player who is clearly head and shoulders above everyone else in his age bracket. You know, is capable of beating Djokovic, who obviously handily dispatched. Is, is and still it. capable. Yeah. It is still is still very good. Um, you know, I think this is. Just kind of underlining that Carlos is still young, um, and is still inexperienced and maybe doesn't have I won't say doesn't because he turned um Wimbledon around, obviously, but but you know, he he does need to be able to adapt his game. And it was interesting that I to me, to my untrained eye, it felt like Novak was using a very standard Carlos strategy at times to beat Medvedev, but executing mm-hmm. correctly in the final. Um thought yeah. that was that was kind of just an interesting sidebar. But
0: I think for me, it highlights what I mentioned about the women's game, and it's just the mental reset that I have to do now as a tennis fan, where for so many years, it's like, well, if you're one of the greats, then like the expectation is Grand Slam final every time. That Mm -hmm. was the Serena expectation. That's the Novak, Roger, Rafa expectation. It's like, okay, I mean, for years, it was, okay, well, so which of which two of the big three are on the same side of the bracket? And then which of the big three is gonna be the final matchup every time? Which one of the, which two of the three, it was always two of yeah. the three Gary. And I think, I think it is the reset that we need to do as a tennis fan base where it's like, maybe, maybe Carlos won't make every grand slam final and that's fine. Like maybe right. he'll win 11 or 12 and be the best of his generation, but also Medvedev and maybe Ben Shelton or Taylor Fritz or somebody else are going to win six or seven, and which is, and it'd be great if, if 10 guys won two each, like that'd be mm-hmm. awesome. In a twenty-year period.
1: Will not win us. Like, no, I'm calling that now. Yeah, it's never not. gonna
0: happen. <laughs> Maybe it's Tiaf. whoever, whoever. But I, I, do think that I'm still in the mindset of, oh well, you identify one of the greats. Well, final every time. That's just that's mm-hmm. just the expectation, and, I, and that and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be with Coco now. It shouldn't be with Alcaraz. It shouldn't be with Medvedev. I think it still can be with Novak. To be quite honest with you. Um, but I do think that, you know, I think we're going to get into an era where it's just going to kind of be maybe it's eight guys and maybe it's six or seven girls or, you know, some combination of that. And we just have really, really compelling parody. And maybe the best round you see in a match is in the quarterfinals some year. Maybe it is not the final because we're not just always looking to odds. Novak and Rafa times 45 in the Grand Slam final or whatever.
1: I mean, Chad... Let's underline this for reference. Novak made every single Grand Slam final this year. I just went he, back in my mind.
0: He won three of them. He won three
1: out of four and lost in the final. Yeah, to he did. <laughs> At age thirty-six, <laughs> that's true. Like I didn't even think about that. He he was one he, set away from was, the Counter slam once again. Once again, could have had it. Yeah, like he was that close. And, and that the one he lost a was a fifth season.
0: set, fifth set thriller, greatest mm-hmm. win of somebody else's career is the one that denies uh, Novak the, the calendar slam.
1: Right. And that, that was his second. Like he already came close before
0: twice, yeah. I think. Yeah. Remarkable. That's a,
1: it, it, it's remarkable. And it just shows again, what what we've said from the beginning of this conversation, that his achievements have been tremendous, but to do it at that age, to make every single final, like that is Novak's expectation. If he went out to anyone before the final, it would have been like, what? Yeah. What are you doing, dude? I
0: mean, he's the oldest man to win uh, the US Open until 2024 when he wins it at age 37.
1: I was going to say, I was, like, I was like he could win it again. Right. <laughs> the problem is he doesn't get injured, that no, is the he, issue here. He's healthy. Right, Nadal, injured all the time, Yeah. Fed obviously got injured by the end of his career, Yeah. Djokovic is like Ronaldo in that he just does not get hurt somehow. And even when it seems like he's like kind of tired, he still beats like the world number three.
0: I need to buy one of his cryogenic chambers or whatever he is, <laughs> yeah, whatever it is literally. that he does. To, yeah, I, I do. I, I, we have to end here somewhere, and we do I, somehow I, end. I do think that this was a. I, I really like this conversation. I I need to come in here in the next twenty twenty four thinking about the greatest athlete. I mean, and that's how I'm thinking about Novak now. Is like, mm-hmm. what what number does it take where it is over, and he is just the athlete of all time because we're there. We're like, we're there where it's like, it's close. You know, that number gets to 26 or 27, and you're like, hmm.
1: I feel like 27, I, it's unequivocal. Yeah. That's my completely arbitrary number, but like in my mind, that's unequivocal.
0: That there's like there's, like, there's like, there's no debate anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 27 is insane. What do you, okay, let's, let's end here. What does he get to?
1: Does he get to 27?
0: Yeah, he does. I don't want to be
1: like too bold, but like at the beginning of this year, I was like, I don't want to be too bold. And then he won three slams. He won three. If he he could win three next year. And I, at think he gets, I think he stops at 27. Okay. Maybe I think We're on, the, we're on, the, same, we're I on think, the same page. I think 27 is the right number.
0: Let's say, I mean, you said two great years. That's eight slams. He wins three yeah. slams. Three out of eight. Three it's out of totally,
1: eight. He could win Australia twice right. in one of the tournaments. Right. And he's there.
0: And and to be clear, if 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 he wins all four in twenty twenty four, we're not going to get on this podcast like shocked. No, that's in the that's realm the of possibility. I mean,
1: Carlos will take matches. Like the problem is, yes. Carlos in my mind is the only player who I go into a match saying, "Oh, I think he's going to beat Djokovic." Right. Correct. Which we if talked about, Alexander. Yeah, yeah. But like, you see this, and like, Djokovic is still capable of beating him, mm-hmm. right? He beat him in Cincinnati. Yeah. Even if Carlos is slightly favored. By the odds makers, like, I don't know, dude. It's, I think Carlos obviously just runs so much that it, it does get harder for Djokovic to outlast someone like that who is just, like, the Energizer Bunny.
0: Yeah. But, like,
1: I don't know, dude. He's the I only fe- one.
0: I just, I felt so much in my heart that the end of the Big 3 era was going to be a really sad time for tennis. And I'm I'm sitting here just hyping myself up for the future. Like we're in a. You're hyping place. yourself up. Think about this.
1: If told tell Chad from three years ago that you're hyping yourself up about Djokovic winning more slams. Just think about that.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I think once mentally, I gave up on the Nadal thing. Now it's just well, like, how far can we get to? <laughs> like,
1: this is literally like it's like the equivalent is, of your home takes is
0: thirty full. in range. Can you do <laughs> yeah. six out of eight? <laughs> There's no way. Say I don't that. I'm going to I'm gonna save that clip for two years from now <laughs> where you say, there's no way if he gets to 30. I, here, I will comfortably say that 35 Grand Slams is out of reach. That yeah, is the highest number many. I'll go to where I'm like, that's impossible. If you get 30 is like, would be crazy, but I'm not going to be like, that's like no way. I'm not, that's not, that's not me. Mm-mm. You're not catching me doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: it's just remarkable. I mean, Brady obviously won a Super Bowl like forty four. Yeah. But the level of athleticism, sorry level of athleticism you need to play quarterback the way Brady did in that last year is not the same. That's not. Right? Like Novak's longevity, even though he is eight years younger, is insane. Yeah. Genuinely. Yeah. You see soccer players slow down so much by age thirty six. Right.
0: Imagine having the role of Tom Brady, but having to run like a cornerback or a wide receiver, and then combine that all into one sport, and then you've got what what a tennis player is doing.
1: Like we'll see if Patrick Mahomes can run around as much as he does at age yeah. thirty six. Right.
0: I don't think he. I don't think he'll be playing like that. No, he might. Yeah, we thought. Yeah, people. I mean, he thirty six is the age where you're like, is he playing for mm-hmm. a quarterback, and even yet, a great one?
1: And yet, our boy Novak. You're. Let's
0: be clear. Your boy, I'm. I'm just like. for the I'm that was like
1: a colloquialism. i okay. was not saying like our, like our, our podcast boy.
0: Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah Okay. That was not clear. He can be yours. That's fine. I don't. I don't claim Djokovic. That's. Fine. I like okay. Djokovic, but okay. I, I wouldn't like. I'm not like a Djokovic super fan. That's like, good. Yeah. So we're both I was not saying, rooting for him. I was not rooting right. for him to win that match. So we're both saying 27 feels. Right. I think 27.
1: 27 is our number.
0: Lock it in. Lock it up. That's crazy. 27. This has been a really fun podcast. Um, I'm really, I'm really glad that we got to talk about the tennis, and I just, I loved, I love tennis. I really do. I really do. I, really <laughs> do. Um, I think that's it. We've gone about an hour fifteen here, which is yeah, longer is than I thought we would go, given the rundown, but given our multiple <laughs> tangents and also just some, having some fun along the way. Here we are. We hope that you all enjoyed the um, the regularly scheduled podcast, and then the little bonus segment you got at the end. Um, and thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen. You can follow us on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, also Instagram and mm-hmm. Facebook. We are not on Threads, and nor we're, will we be. Uh, yeah, Threads died. But yeah, our conversation about Threads... We did talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a waste of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what were we thinking? <laughs> no, but yeah, please. Then Honestly, the best way to hang out with us is just subscribe to the podcast and give us a mm-hmm. rating or a review. If you love the podcast and you have a a tennis fan in your life, you could just, like, text them the link to us and they they can then listen and have a nice time just like you did. And until next week, we hope that you all continue to be well and be safe and we'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys.